I'm Christina Onestead with KPFA News Headlines. Sudan's military and its paramilitary have announced they will abide by a new 24-hour ceasefire after a previous attempt at a truce failed. The military said in a statement the truce had begun at 6 p.m. local time today and it was for humanitarian purposes and would last until the next evening, depending on whether the other side adheres to its provisions. Earlier in the day, the Rapid Support Forces, the paramilitary group, had said it would abide by a 24-hour truce starting in the early evening. In the U.S., the white man accused of shooting Ralph Yarrell, a black teenager, two times, once in the head, pled not guilty in his first court appearance today. 84-year-old Andrew Lester is charged with first-degree assault and armed criminal action in the shooting, which has attracted presidential attention and renewed national debate about gun policies. Yarrow's family says he is recuperating at home. Lester turned himself in Tuesday and was later, later released on bond after agreeing to relinquish any weapons and to have no contact with Yarrow or his family. A GoFundMe account for the family has quickly raised more than $3.2 million. Antioch City Council passed three measures to audit the police department's hiring practices, internal affairs processes, and equity at the department after a police scandal over racist text messages and an FBI investigation into other misconduct has roiled the community. Outraged residents rallied ahead of the Antioch City Council meeting yesterday, calling for more accountability. And not one of those officers spoke up and said, this is wrong. Let's stop this. Civil rights attorney John Burris. And not one of those officers. That shows to me there's some rottenness in that department. And deep down inside, this department is rotten to the core. Several text messages include officers routinely using the N-word against suspects and after descriptions of police brutality and racial profiling. Community members are calling for officers to be arrested and charged with hate crimes for those who engaged in police brutality and in some cases that were fatal. Ellen McDonald, chief public defender of Contra Costa County, says a scandal goes up to some of the top tiers of the Antioch Police Department. We can't downplay this issue. This isn't a few officers. I want to be really clear. We've reviewed this. There are 45 officers on these text chains that are disclosed thus far. 45 Antioch police officers. 16 of them are in leadership roles. There's an internal affairs officer that's part of these text chains showing once again the police cannot police the police. Antioch's Contra Costa County's district attorney has released a second redacted report detailing more racist text messages and potential civil rights violations. KPFA asked the DA's office if they're considering hate crimes charges. They declined to answer due to the ongoing investigation, but did say the report does not include every derogatory text message retrieved. 
and it's an ongoing state and federal criminal investigation, which may lead to further disclosures. It said their reports also document potential dishonesty, perjury, violations of individual civil rights, and abuse of authority. A coalition of community groups in Oakland wants the city council to redirect some $20 million from the city's public safety budget to the Oakland Department of Transportation to strengthen public safety from traffic violence. Carter Levin is a volunteer with organization Traffic Violence Rapid Response. Wider sidewalks, protected bike lanes, better crosswalks, even speed bumps. We can save lives. We can make Oakland safer for everybody. This comes after traffic violence claims over 35 Oakland's lures lives last year. Many of those killed were pedestrians and bicyclists, along with motorists, and were disproportionately people of color, according to organizers. China is offering to facilitate Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. China's foreign minister relayed the officer to his Israeli and Palestinian counterparts in its latest efforts at mediations towards peace in world affairs. Last month, Saudi Arabia and Iran reached a deal in China to restore diplomatic ties that were cut off in 2016. That's paving the way towards ending Yemen's proxy civil war that's been called the world's worst humanitarian crisis. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for KPFA. Today on Against the Grain, where can one find an outstanding example of decentralized democracy? The state of Kerala in India certainly qualifies. I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Richard Frankie about his book, People's Planning, Kerala, Local Democracy and Development, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Why are people in the Indian state of Kerala doing well, doing so extraordinarily well when it comes to indicators like infant mortality, life expectancy, literacy, and household poverty? What happened beginning in the mid-20th century and then in the 1990s to devolve power to the community level, to make development a bottom-up process, to make mass mobilization the means by which to bring to light people's needs and how to address them. A book by Richard Frankie and T.M. Thomas Isaac tells the remarkable and inspiring story of how, in 1996, the state of Kerala launched quite possibly the world's most extensive and successful experiment in decentralization. The book is People's Planning, Kerala, Local Democracy and Development. Dick Frankie is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Montclair State University. When he and I connected recently, he began with these basics about Kerala. Kerala is one of the 29 states in India. It has a current population of just a little bit less than 35 million in an area approximately twice the size of the U.S. state of New Jersey. Kerala has a 
sort of three main geographical areas. It has a long coastline with um, backwater areas. It has a kind of Midlands area where a lot of rice is grown. And then it has a lot of the Western Ghat Mountains, which have very steep slopes. And it is covered with coconuts, coconut trees. Um, there must be several million of them. Is agriculture a big part of Kerala's economy? Absolutely. In fact, Kerala produces a lot of rice, a lot of coconuts, but also lots of spices. It's historically been part of the spice-producing area. It also gave us our word for teak, um, which is one of the kinds of uh, furniture-quality wood that's produced there. And in recent years, Kerala has supplemented its agricultural production with medical tourism. It's a very popular place for people um, from the Western countries, especially with chronic diseases such as chronic pain. And um, that's become a, a new important industry there. So my understanding is that Kerala was formed, was created as a, as a state the state within India, in 1956. What happened in elections held in 1957 in Kerala? That's a very interesting uh, point to bring up. In the early days of the Indian Federal Republic, there was a kind of reorganization of state boundaries so that they could get mostly people speaking a particular language in one contiguous area. And in the case of Kerala, three areas were clumped together to produce a new state that was inaugurated in 1956. And that meant that the first new democratically elected ministry uh, would be the first one to emerge victorious in the elections that were held in February of 1957. And to the surprise and shock of many, though not everybody, the Indian Communist Party won a majority of the state assembly seats and formed the first ministry, which is known there as the EMS ministry or the first ministry. The letters EMS are the letters for the name of the leader of the Communist Party in, in Kerala. E.M.S. Nambudiripad, who became the first chief minister. And, and how momentous was this election, this democratic election of a communist government in Kerala? Put, put that in context, uh, perhaps even globally. This was the height of the Cold War. There was grave concern in, in the United States about any sort of moves in the direction of anything they could identify as socialism. And of course, the Kerala case um, was an actual named communist party. So in Washington, this was seen as a very dangerous situation. Would you characterize the, the communist formation that came into power in Kerala in 1957 as, as revolutionary or as reformist? And if reformist, what were the priorities that the government tried to, or the government established? The 
Communist Party of India at that time was moving fairly rapidly in the direction of staying within the bounds of the Indian constitution. A few years back, about 10 or 15 years back, the party had had a revolutionary outlook and there had been some armed uprisings that were all brutally suppressed. And at this time, the party's philosophy was, um, now we're talking about from their point of view, it was that if they could improve the lot of ordinary people, it was worth accepting a reformist situation. There were some, I would call, ultra-leftists, both in and outside the party in Kerala, who felt that this was kind of selling out, but uh, the vast majority of the, of the party activists had accepted the new situation, and they went immediately to work after being inaugurated uh, to carry out a, a variety of very interesting reforms that benefited ordinary people uh, quite a lot. And which reform programs stood out? And, and I assume here maybe we're talking about the uh, pretty famous Kerala model of development, um, which was seen as a really as a model for other areas, regions, countries that wanted to move in a, a, a democratic direction. Yes. The first thing they did on the sixth day in office, uh, the chief minister, EMS Nambudiripad, issued a stay of eviction notice. This was an incredibly important idea to make it impossible for the large landlords to evict or throw off uh, their tenants, uh, which was usually used as a way to terrorize them, the threat of eviction, uh, to terrorize them into submission. And there was tremendous public pressure building up for a land reform that would end uh, evictions. Another thing that they did uh, within a, a couple of months was to announce, uh, to promulgate a reform of the education system which was a little bit complicated, but it basically gave teachers rights that they had never had before. And it sort of systematized and regularized the curricula in different, different schools. Kerala had a lot of mission schools, which taught very different things from the government schools. Uh, and uh, this particular reform ended up being quite controversial and even playing a role in the eventual um, dismissal of the ministry, but it was um, immediately seen by people in Kerala as a, as a great benefit, especially to the, to the teachers. They also promulgated within the first two or three months a new policy on the state police, and that was that the police were not allowed to interfere in any labor disputes. Um, historically, the police certainly from a communist point of view, were not just keeping the peace, but were uh, essentially on hire um, by the big landlords or the employers of any kind. And so um, by announcing this new police policy, it made it um, something that, or again, ordinary people who might have 
been afraid to go on strike because the police would routinely attack picket lines and beat people up with these lathy sticks that they had, kind of like a baseball bat. Um, and this was a notorious practice um, throughout India, but in Kerala, they sort of put an end to it, at least for a, for a while. They also spread the fair price shops to virtually every, every village or at least every district. And this was important because although Kerala produces a, a lot of foreign exchange value through cashew nuts and cardamom and other spices, peppers and so forth, um, the amount of rice produced is not enough and therefore the state has to import rice from other states. And so by having these fair price shops, they were able to reduce the kind of um, effects when you have a, a shortage where people will run up prices and you'll get monopolies and, and other things of that type. His name is Dick Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-E. He's Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Montclair State University. And we are talking about a book he co-authored with T.M. Thomas Isaac. It's called People's Planning, Kerala, Local Democracy and Development. It's out in a new edition from Leftward Books. I'm C.S. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So your book addresses a campaign, a campaign for decentralization launched in 1996, before we uh, turn to 96 and succeeding years, which we'll do in a moment, uh, what were the, the major, and there's so much to say about this, but uh, what would you say are maybe the major achievements of the reforms promulgated and implemented in the Indian state of Kerala pre-1996? So pre-1996, um, Along with this election victory of the Communist Party and the establishment of a communist-led state assembly that could pass acts that would benefit lower-income people, they, in addition to the things that we've already talked about, um, there were um, a number of other things that, that happened uh, as a result much of it happened a little bit after, or the consequences only showed up afterwards. So, for example, in 1974, a communist-led follow-up ministry passed an Agricultural Workers Act. We know even in the United States, agricultural workers are often at the bottom of the list for benefits. And in Kerala, they, they not only established um, improved working conditions, minimum wages that, that were actually put into effect, and improvements in the working conditions, uh, but they added something that had never existed before anywhere in India, which was um, pensions for agricultural workers, for farm laborers. Um, they uh, were, it was also very much a union a pro-union type of administration. Um, so um, workers felt safe, again, because of the police policy. So you had a lot of, of actions by people in the lowest income groups um, demanding more rights. Um, there was a big library movement 
villages built libraries and had reading rooms. Kerala has way in a, um, above the um, news number of different newspapers uh, in, the, in the population. Um, there's a long tradition of, of um, newspaper reading in the tea shops and in the local libraries. Um, there was organizations to push public health measures trying to improve, especially drinking water. Um, that's still on the agenda, but a lot has been accomplished in that area. Some of these improvements are spread across um, a 20 or 30 year period. And it was really in the 1970s that some academics and development experts started noticing Kerala. Um, and that's when the Kerala model became a topic of books and articles. Since then, it has continued for quite some time. The People's Plan campaign or People's Planning campaign was launched in 1996 in Kerala by the Left Democratic Front. What should we know about the LDF and why was this plan for decentralization desired? Why was it considered better than the system that existed before 96? So let me go back just a little bit to set a background here. After the dismissal of the 1957 elected communist ministry, there was a kind of a series of back and forths where the conservative parties would win, then the left would win, and so, and then it would go back the other way. In 1987, there was a kind of a turning point election. If we think of 1957 when Kerala was formed, it wasn't exactly a turning point, but it was a new, a very new situation with this pro-people government. But in 1987, the Communist Party won elections again and took a majority in the state assembly. But as they looked back over their own achievements, they realized that, that there was kind of a limit to how much you can do through redistributing wealth. Uh, supporting unions, getting minimum wages enforced, and so forth. And they were being attacked by the right wing, constantly arguing, uh, okay, so, so you did this, but you don't know how to make production increase. You don't know how to create jobs. And Kerala has historically uh, had uh, a very high unemployment problem. And because of the excellence of the school systems, you got this very contradictory situation where you have a large population of very well-educated people who can't find a job. So in 1987, when they won elections for about the fourth or fifth time, again, there was back and forth, they decided to try to figure out an alternative to just doing the same thing they had been doing. And they launched a program called the New Democratic Initiatives. This was a program that ran for almost 10 years, but most of it ran in the second five years of it. So from about 1991 to 1996. 
And what they did was to draw on their existing resources to try to run experiments that would be like mini campaigns. Because one of the, one of the things they had, along with a very well-educated population, was a population of people who were willing to come out in the streets and demonstrate, or, you know, uh, they would make these large parades called jatas or padayatras, and, and they would, mar you know, 100,000 people would march through a town, you know, for several hours. They knew how to apply pressure, and they knew they had a very loyal following. So what they decided they needed was to establish some real alternatives, um, not to stop doing what they're already doing, but to add to it. I see. And does this relate to a section of your book about local experiments and local initiatives that sort of may have inspired or otherwise paved the way for what was to come with this people's planning campaign? And if so, what kinds of local level initiatives were created and implemented that involved the kind of mass mobilization that was nurtured during the period since 1957? Yes, one of the organizations that they turned to, which had a lot of pro-party people in it already, is an organization known, known in English as the KSSP, the Kerala People's Science Movement. This was a movement of scientists to try to spread scientific thinking into the villages of Kerala. And it actually goes back to the 1960s. But when um, the political leadership turned in the late 80s to the KSSP, KSSP had actually established an alternative development center of its own um, called the Integrated Rural Technology Center. Uh, it was supported entirely by private money, although later they got some funds from the United Nations because some of their projects were actually taken up there. And they began working on an array of uh, different things, trying to analyze problems and bring up possible solutions and this was also a characteristic of the 1957 ministry that they tried to identify what were the problems that people were suffering from the most. So one of the things that came out of that was um, several of the um, activists were trained as in engineering and they designed uh, what are called smokeless chulas or smokeless ovens they spent a lot of time and put a lot of resources into this, and they were able to design, uh, these are still in operation, they were able to design ovens that were very low pollution. One study found that the typical Indian kitchen, where the woman would be cooking for two to three hours maybe every day, that being in, in there with a the traditional fire to fire this oven was more or less the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And so this was, this was a kind of alternative development project that dealt with, pe with people's real needs, with serious problems that they had. 
Um, and they were able not only to design a, a very uh, low polluting oven, but again, because they were part of this giant political movement, they were able to um, run a campaign to popularize it that was very successful. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Richard Frankie joins me. He is a professor emeritus of anthropology at Montclair State University in New Jersey. He's written numerous articles and books about the Indian state of Kerala, including Kerala Radical Reform as Development in an Indian State, a book he co-authored with Barbara Chasen. We are talking about a book out in a new edition from Leftward Books. It's authored by Dick and T.M. Thomas Isaac. It's called People's Planning, Kerala, Local Democracy and Development. We've put a link on our website, againstthegrain.org, to uh, this new book, People's Planning. Another initiative was the plan for small-scale electricity production at Meenvalam Waterfall in Kerala. Tell us about that. Kerala has a tremendous potential for hydroelectric development. The Ghat Mountains that run north and south through the whole state have very steep slopes, but there have been a lot of concern about the development of large-scale reservoir uh, type of electricity generation. This is um, kind of an awareness that the environmental movement internationally has, has brought up to people. Um, and in many countries, including China, they, um, they do a lot of a very small-scale hydroelectric. All you need is a stream carrying a small amount of water that's going fairly fast and certain kinds of, of fairly inexpensive equipment. And you can design a little hydroelectric plant that will provide um, night lighting, say, in a rural area, uh, even up in the mountains, and especially up in the mountains. Um, and so at Minvalam, uh, they worked out a design and have established one that works very well and is also being fairly widely used. Um, and the idea is that because it's only tapping a little bit off of the stream to the side to, to run the generator, um, it should run for a long time with hardly any and possibly no environmental secondary consequences. So that's another example. And that's actually part of a larger project that they have developed, which they called the People's Resource Mapping Program. Yeah, and this uh, resource mapping program that's described in the book that uh, Dick Frankie and T.M. Thomas Isaac have written called People's Planning. But I want to plunge right into the a people's planning campaign, the main focus of the book, again, launched in 1996 in the state of Kerala in India. You and Isaac identify six stages of the campaign. And let's start with the first one. The first one was the organizing and holding of what were called Grama Sabhas in India. This is in the fall of 1996, at least the, the first round was 
uh, were convened. What, uh, what does Grama Saba mean? It means village assembly. So the village assemblies, the Grama Sabas, are the units inside which each of the plans for uh, any given year or five-year plan, these are the units in which those plans are carried out. They're the communities that are trying to develop themselves. And so they are the logical units for the campaign that was started in the fall of 1996. The problems were to get people to go to the, to the Grama Sabas and then to carry out the other five stages, which we'll at least mention uh, later on. They took a kind of plunge by announcing in an, at the beginning of the campaign that 35 to 40% of the entire development budget was going to be handed over to these Grama Sabhas, to these village assemblies, to decide how best to develop their own local communities. There has not been anything quite like this that I'm aware of any, anywhere else, certainly not in, in the rest of India. And so the, the first problem they had to solve was how to get people to attend in large enough numbers to make it worth it. Right, and they had to deal with uh, issues like, yeah, would people be motivated to show up? How did the authorities, how did the, the campaign organizers uh, try and get people to go? The first and biggest draw that they had to get people to attend was the fact that a large amount of money was, was being put on the table. In fact, it was about 50, 5 zero, 50 times the amount that in the previous year had been allotted to the local communities. And so the first thing to get people to go, they said, you're going to have enough money to do some really big things in your village. Um, the second thing that they did was to organize these jatas, the parades, the processions. Um, they had political activists who would light coconut oil lamps and uh, march through the, the villages. Um, usually their own villages, um, they sent written invitations to every single voting age adult, uh, inviting them to come. They set the Grama Sabas themselves on Sunday afternoon, um, which was a time that uh, most people, more people could attend something like that. And they announced in advance that there would be small-scale discussions, not just speeches by politicians. They used television a lot. They ran advertisements. Um, so they created a somewhat of a festive, positive atmosphere. Then they chose to hold the Grama Sabhas in usually a local elementary school. And the reason for that is that the schools were kind of perfect buildings for this type of activity because you would have either an, a maidan, an open, an open air sort of assembly area where you could have a meeting with hundreds of people 
and then people could go into the classroom buildings and sit in groups of maybe 10 to 20. Um, and then you, there you would have a situation where people who are normally shy at, at a big meeting would be more likely to speak up. In addition, they trained the um, activists who were kind of managing the, the Grama Sabhas to have a kind of a questionnaire, a semi-structured questionnaire, so that if people didn't start talking, they, they had ready questions. Uh, and these were chosen to try to expand people's ideas about development. So for example, if people said, there's not enough rice being grown because the farmers can't get a high enough price, then the discussion leader would say, that's a good point. Have you also thought about whether the irrigation system needs to be improved, fixed up? So things to, to jog people's thinking. Um, they were not trying to force people into any particular set of thoughts, but they were trying to get them to express their feelings and talk about what kinds of things they most needed to have in their particular communities. That's the voice of Dick Frankie, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Montclair State University. And his book with T.M. Thomas Isaac is out in a new edition. It's called People's Planning. Kerala, Local Democracy and Development. We're talking about the way decentralization and development played out in the state of Kerala in India, mostly beginning in 1996. That's the focus of Frankie and Isaac's book. So tremendously complex organizational task, trying to lure people to go to these meetings, these grama sabas, these village assemblies, training uh, facilitators, uh, developing questionnaires, developing agendas for the meetings. How successful were they at getting people to go? Um, how many assemblies were held in 1996? How many people attended total? And, and how many, do we know how many people attended the average Grama Saba? There were 14,700 and a little more Grama Sabhas held during approximately a four-month period. The average attendance was 180 persons. And then those 180 persons broke into smaller groups to discuss in more detail a list of 12 topics that were suggested for the discussions. Overall, 2.9 million people, about 11.5% of the voting age population of the entire state of Kerala, 2.9 million people attended these meetings. So Dick, was, was the focus on identifying problems within each village, within each you know, area covered by these assemblies? Was, was that the main issue or... Um, and how much emphasis was placed on coming up with possible solutions to the problems? From the perspective of the organizers and activists, the goal of the 
Grama Sabhas was to get people talking about the problems to express um, what are called the felt needs of the population. The next stage, the development seminars were intended to begin discussion of possible solutions to the problems. At the Grama Sabhas, some delegates were elected to go on to the next stage, although everyone was invited. The next stage after the Grama Sabhas was called the development seminars. Before the development seminars could take place, the elected delegates from the Grama Sabhas and anyone who wanted to join them were um, asked to go to the various village offices and collect as much information as possible so that if they began to discuss solutions, they would know what kinds of resources they had locally. Now recall that 35 to 40% of the development budget for, for this period was to come down from the state level to the village level. Nonetheless, they hoped that this would stimulate uh, a lot of local thinking and uh, even local activities. And it turns out it did a great deal of cleanup and improving the irrigation systems, a lot of things that don't require uh, engineers or anything um, was done uh, as, as um, volunteer labor. Fair to say, Dick, that the whole philosophy was bottom-up, that you really had to go to the people directly in order to learn the true nature of the state of affairs on the ground, uh, the needs and issues and problems that people had or that faced the people? Absolutely. But since this was the first time, a certain amount of outside guidance was probably beneficial. It was always a certain delicate tension between encouraging people, um, but also they wanted to avoid what they thought were typical problems. I'll give you one example. Um, in development theory, there's a, a lot of time spent on building roads, and, and they didn't want to just get everybody getting together and saying, oh, let's build some more roads. So I, the example I gave earlier where they said it's not the price of rice only, but what if what about the irrigation system? Um, to, to do this, they needed to gather data about their own communities. And so a general structure was suggested, which had 12 chapters, agriculture, education, drinking water, transportation, housing, there, there were several of these, and each one they were supposed to try to gather information. And to get a, a rough picture of the geology, it was suggested that they conduct something called a transect walk. This is something that has been invented in development practice around the world. I'm not sure which country did it first, but you, you you pick a place on the edge of your village where you can walk straight across it 
through the middle of the village. It doesn't have to be exact, um, but you go with a team and one person, for example, may count trees or make notes on uh, whether there's any paved roads or whatever. And all this data was gathered together into a village self-report. And every single village in Kerala produced one of these reports. And the average length of the reports was 106 pages. So they did a lot of, a lot of very good work. And in the process of collecting this information, they, they noticed all kinds of things like, you know, gee, look at how waterlogged this area is. Or, um, you know, there's no, there's no access to drinking water here at all. Um, so they were m making notes uh, that would lead to the stage after the development seminar. This would be discussed at the seminar. And from that point on, there, there would be task forces formed, usually out of people who had been the delegates from the original Grama Sabha. But the, these were the people who would attempt to draft project proposals so that they could get some of this large amount of money that was going to come down from, from the state capital. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. My guest is Richard or Dick Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-E. He's an anthropologist, and he co-authored with T.M. Thomas Isaac the book People's Planning, Kerala, Local Democracy, and Development. And people can read in that book uh, a detailed description of the, the six stages of the People's Planning campaign launched in 1996 in Kerala. We've highlighted, my guest has highlighted a, a number of features of them, but there's a lot more to say and there was a, a lot more that was done. And I want to move now to the sort of the impact of the People's Planning Campaign and these meetings and these reports and the planning that came out of the reports, what impact the People's Planning Campaign, this campaign for decentralization had on, well, let's take poverty and the number of people in poverty in Kerala. What, what was the impact in that arena? This um, campaign achieved a great deal in the first five year stretch, but um, I think it's in some ways more useful to look at the longer term outcome because Kerala has continued to uh, benefit from the continuation of the campaign in a more institutional form. And one thing that happened in that regard was the creation of a special institute called the Kerala Institute for Local Administration. And this is an actually uh, like a training center, a campus, uh, where people go for one day up to a month long programs. Elected officials from the villages and urban neighborhoods of Kerala uh, so that they can actually carry the campaign forward, but in the quieter offices rather than uh, having the marching through the communities with a coconut oil um, lamp uh, chanting something. And so if we combine the, the two elements, the campaign mode and the institutionalized mode, and we look at Kerala today, 
one of the things we can see, you asked about poverty reduction. Kerala is the one state in India that is on the verge of actually eliminating poverty. There's different methods of collecting the data that make it a little complicated to talk about. But one set of statistics shows that about 6% of people in Kerala are living in a locally defined poverty state compared to 28% in the rest of India. Now, it varies greatly from one area to the other, but I think the difference between 28% and 6% speaks for itself. And there are a number of other indicators like that that I could briefly mention. Right. Your book goes into what the uh, People's Planning Campaign, supplemented by subsequent initiatives, was able to accomplish in the arena of education and specifically public education in Kerala and the arena of public health. Talk about those two facets of, of society and, and what sorts of changes happened. In the arena of education, Kerala's schools get top place, that is actually number one place in virtually every study in India of the quality of education. In the case of public health, um, there's been uh, a little bit of seesawing, but overall, public health services in Kerala have recently been upgraded substantially. And I just want to mention one statistic here. The infant mortality rate is widely accepted as one of the best overall indicators of the um, state of the public health and medical care of any, any population for which you have this number. And in 1986, when I first went to Kerala, the rural infant mortality rate was 41 per thousand. That means that of every 1,000 babies born alive, 41 of them died before reaching the age of one. The parallel number for the rest of India was 124. So Kerala was already way ahead of the rest of the country. In the year 2020, the All India rate had gotten down to 32, while Kerala's rate is now seven. Kerala's infant mortality rate is actually better than the rate for African-Americans in the United States. While we're talking about public health, I'd like to mention also that Kerala, three years ago, became the first state in India to abo totally abolish what's called open defecation. That is, every person has access to a latrine. Um, and this obviously has, is probably related to the, to the other public health statistics. 100% of Kerala's villages have electricity hookups. The state is now producing about 50% of all the vegetables that it needs. 
used to be about 20%. And that's another indication of the quality of, of the diet that is connected to, to the public health types of statistics. A part of your book focuses on the award-winning Kudumba Shri Network. It is, as I understand it, a women's neighborhood network that includes microcredit, social enterprise activities, skills training, a marketing scheme for uh, its products. Uh, tell us uh, about Kudumba Shri and, and why it's so significant. Kudumba Shri has been so successful in reducing poverty that it is being actually copied in some Indian states and has, has been promoted somewhat by the United Nations. Um, it is, as you say, it is a network of women-owned cooperatives connected to local cooperative banks, and they organize these production cooperatives primarily for local products. So for example, they manufacture soap, umbrellas, school uniforms for, the, for kids, and some of them are now setting up tea shops along the national highway um, that are also run as worker-owned cooperatives. And a word about the origin of this, the Kudumba Shri project is not exactly part of the people's campaign, but it really did largely grow out of it, but it also grew out of ultimately, I think, that 1957 ministry that started Kerala on a trajectory of focusing their, their work on the poorest groups. When they looked at the lowest income groups, one of the things they noticed was that most of them the woman did not work. And they, they realized that this was very significant because the men who were working to do things to increase their wages is difficult. Whereas the women, if they went from not working to working, would add quantitatively more income to the family. And so they built the whole program around creating employment for, for women uh, and uh, it has worked remarkably well. And as any disciplined study of anything would do, your book also examines some of the, the weaknesses and shortcomings of the topic at hand of the People's Planning Campaign launched in 1996 in Kerala. Um, we don't have a lot of time, but what stood out to you in this regard? One of the biggest problems that has not yet been solved is dealing with solid waste. This is a serious problem in Kerala. They've banned certain kinds of plastic uh, bags, but finding some way to handle the large amounts of uh, solid waste has, has eluded them and is still a, a widely debated issue. There's also problems with some of the latrines that have been constructed and um, the spread of, of waterborne diseases. So they're thinking to rebuild some of the uh, latrines that were built during these mass campaigns to overcome the open defecation problem, um, that they need to have sealed tanks, what, what we call septic tanks, right? 
Um, so, so that's been a, a shortcoming. There had been some difficulties connecting the campaign to the medical profession, which is why I mentioned earlier there was a bit of seesawing in, in some of the public, public health data. Um, but I think that's been worked out. Um, so I would just say in conclusion that the People's Campaign overall has been a remarkable accomplishment on the sort of world stage of people trying to solve the problems of underdevelopment and build safe, healthy communities um, where they can seriously anticipate the possibility of overcoming poverty and a lot of the problems that are related to it. I think in that regard, Kerala is a grand experiment with many lessons that we can learn from. And many of those lessons are laid out in my guest's book, co-authored with T.M. Thomas Isaac. The book is People's Planning, Kerala Local Democracy and Development. It's out in a new edition from Leftward Books. My guest is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Uh, Dick, thanks so much for co-writing this book, for your work uh, on Kerala over the many years, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about this inspiring place. And that program first aired last November 29th. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Wednesday nights from 10 p.m. to midnight, tune in to The Nightcap with me, Mo, an eclectic mix of music that's a treat at the end of your day. That's The Nightcap on Wednesday nights from 10 p.m. to midnight with me, Mo, here on KPFA and kpfa.org. Erica Huggins. I attended the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And I was so moved by what I saw on those Capitol grounds that as I stood there, this 15-year-old black girl, I felt this promise to myself, like a vow arise from deep within me. I will serve people for the rest of my life. And on that day, I learned so much, not only about racial thinking, saying, and doing, but also gender thinking, saying, and doing. Only one woman spoke. The other women were uninvited to speak. And as a black person and as a woman, 
that day impacted me in a big and beautiful and deep way. Storytelling for Social Change on KPFA. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248VR in Santa Cruz, 94.3 K232FZ in Monterey, and online worldwide at kpfa.org.